everyone. Welcome to the Natasha Crane Podcast. Today, I am back with Andy White to finish our really, really important conversation on what Christian parents need to know about public schools. Now, if you missed part one, you need to go back and listen to that before this episode, because this one is really a continuation of what we were talking about there. It was episode 34, and it's the one that was published just prior to this, so it should be really easy to find. Make sure you don't miss that. Now, we already did introductions in the last episode, so I'm not going to repeat all that here. I want to dive in really quickly because I know we have a lot of content to cover, but I do want to add just a little bit more information today about Andy that I think is helpful context to know for what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Yes, Andy has extensive educational experience, as we talked about in the last episode, but I want you to know he also has a passion for and great experience in the area of apologetics, how you make a case for and defend the truth of Christianity. And that experience, that knowledge informs a lot of thinking on how all of this information on public schools and how it applies to Christian parents is uh, is what we're talking about today. So he is a graduate of Frank Turek's Cross-Examined Instructor Academy. He is currently pursuing a master's degree in apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary, and he leads a local apologetics ministry in the Dayton, Ohio area called Dayton Apologetics. And also, little known fact, Andy was a huge part of bringing our Unshaken Conference to Dayton last winter. I don't think that would have happened without him. I am so personally grateful for his work there and the opportunity to get to know him better through that. We actually met originally through Cross-Examined Instructor Academy, I think. And um, and so it's just been great working with Andy. So Andy, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Natasha. It's, it's a pleasure. I know we had a great uh, podcast the last time and looking forward to digging in and uh, and, and a great Q&A opportunity to help parents and equip and train them and give them some insight and encouragement. Yeah. You know, before I started uh, getting ready to set everything up and record this episode, I realized I was feeling excited. Like I actually had like excitement in my in my bones about recording this because there was so much great stuff in that last episode that we talked about. And I felt like I just personally learned so much and we received so much wonderful feedback on that episode from parents who were really just thankful for the information that you shared. So I, I couldn't be more excited to do this follow-up. And parents overwhelmingly were like, that's great. And I can't wait for the next part. Because I need to know what to do. And that's really kind of where we left off last time. We spent a good hour and a half talking about the entire educational system from a bird's eye view, what it all looks like, why it matters. And then we got to that point of saying, okay, well, what now? What if you're a parent whose kids are in public school for, for whatever reason? What do you really need to know about? how to get involved and understand what's going on there in your kids' schools, given this whole structure that we talked about, and then how can you advocate for change when possible? So to that end, Andy, in our communications back and forth and preparing for these episodes, you recommended seven things in particular. And so I want to take each one of those at a time and talk about some practical steps for parents. And then we're going to hit a whole bunch of questions that people submitted online for you. As you kind of referenced earlier, we got dozens and dozens of questions from parents. We're not going to be able to hit all of them, but we're going to hit a ton of them more than I usually do in my interviews because I know that this is a subject that is near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. People have tons of questions, and so I want to leave a lot of time for that. So we're going to get to those. But first, let's go through these seven things for parents, some very practical steps for understanding what's going on in your kids' schools. The first tip that you gave is get to know people. You said get to know your local school board, superintendent, principal, and other school level administrators. Okay, 
How do you do that, practically speaking? Because if you tell me, hey, Natasha, <laughs> I want you to go get to know your superintendent, I, I wouldn't even know where to start with that. That sounds so intimidating to me. What do you mean by that, practically speaking? How do parents get to know these key decision makers? Well, I, I think it actually is the key. And I think uh, it's a little bit of uh, new school and old school. Uh, some of it is maybe not intuitive and some of it would be intuitive just as you develop a relationship with anybody else, uh, whether it be in the professional life or your personal life or you know, church or other groups. So the first thing is do some research on the individuals. So let's take it at the, um, at the board level. Now, it depends, again, uh, on how, how big the community is. If it's large schools, probably don't know the board members. If it's smaller schools, maybe you do. And so this, again, varies from community to community. Um, go to the low-hanging fruit type activities. So with board members, it would be board events. So meetings, uh, check out, uh, particularly um, if there's archived videos or watch live in some districts, the actual board uh, meetings. Um, do some research. And a lot of the board members either have professional, personal Facebooks. Now, obviously, we're not stalking anybody, but we're doing some general research. Uh, a lot of times communities will have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter pages that are dedicated to education or different groups or the different uh, booster or foundation or um, academic groups that are associated with the school. A lot of time the board board members are a part of those groups as just a general citizen or community member. Another thing is there's going to be opportunities in meet and greets, not only at board meetings, but also at different uh, uh, events in the community. Now, the easy one, obviously, is a levy campaign or a building campaign or some major initiative or programming where superintendent, board members, maybe even central office staff will be there. Go to those, or the ones that you can, meet and greet, and just be person-to-person, -person, uh, affable and congenial, and just get to know people. Other times, there's manufactured events. Uh, example, uh, obviously, you can reach out to a superintendent or board member and email them. Uh, you can reach out through their social media and direct message them, or you can uh, call and leave a message. And board members, while well, we talked about last time, don't have significant power or authority when they're by themselves, but they do have the obligation and opportunity to speak individually with individual uh, community members. Uh, if a, a community member wants to meet with them, talk with them on the phone, uh, the superintendent uh, has the opportunity, a, a community member, parent can come into the office and schedule time. So again, there's some things that are out in the community, some things where you that are uh, manufactured by the school district, other things that are manufactured uh, by the parent or the community member. And there, it depends. Again, larger districts, the time of the board members and the administration is stretched. Okay. Smaller districts, it tends to have, you tend to have a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more time. Even though the people are wearing a few more hats, uh, that tends to be a little bit more access, just in my general impression. How common would it be for a parent to reach out and, and say, hey, superintendent, I want to meet with you or, hey, you know, local board member, I'd like to meet with you. I guess for me as a parent, I'm just thinking, OK, if I'm listening to this episode and I would like to meet someone, I may be more inclined to reach out and do mm -hmm. that if I think that that's a relatively common thing where they're used to being contacted and there's some expectation that parents may contact them. And maybe I'd be less inclined if it's like, no, that's pretty rare. I mean, you can, but mm -hmm. people are going to think that's strange. So how common is it that they do meet with parents? Well, 
I, I will tell you this. If a superintendent gets an email from a community member or parent, they want to, uh, that person wants to meet with them. Unfortunately, they go to the negative <laughs> in their, in their early expectation. But if you're specific in your email, uh, you introduce yourself. It's a congenial, short, succinct email. And you just, um, if there's an opportunity in their schedule just to come by and meet, uh, particularly if you're, let's say you're a new community member, you just moved into the district, you have a young child that's just starting school or multiple children. Uh, if uh, you're a business owner and you've just uh, come into that community as a business owner. Um, so uh, I think those opportunities present themselves in a variety of different packages. I would advise this. Use all those. Use social media, their professional social media accounts. Use email. Use phone calls. I would not suggest at a, at a, at a board office or a superintendent's office just showing up because their schedules are packed. doesn't matter if they're small. And, and, and again, it's just like any other business. They absolutely want to meet with people and talk with people, but they may have be the tyranny of the desk for that day. And so they may not have the opportunity and they absolutely, their heart is not to turn away people. So reach out, schedule an appointment and let them know it's just a congenial meet and greet and it's not some problem up front. That, that's great advice. And and it strikes me as you're, as you're saying that, that there are kind of two different senses when you say get to know people. It's not necessarily that you need to know everyone personally and have met with them, but get to know who they are and what they're yes. advocating for and what they're involved with, which you can do without ever setting foot into an office. Not that you shouldn't set foot into an office, but when you go to their social media and you follow them and you follow you know all, their footprint online, basically, um, or through other methods, then you get to know them a little bit from a distance, but you're still knowing them and their purposes and what they're doing. Doing. And so that might be a starting point for a lot of parents who are feeling otherwise intimidated to go and know and, and them I personally. Think a lot of the, I think a lot of the board members and the superintendents, as they are younger generationally, they're using social media, they're using uh, professional social media, um, and they're using opportunities out there in the digital sphere to interact with people in creative ways. They're holding Zooms or Google Meets. They're um, providing opportunities. Uh, they're sending resources and updates much more readily than maybe my generation and the generation before me. The second thing that you said is attend district and building level meetings. So explain that a bit. What kind of meetings are open to parent attendance and how does the average parent from outside the system find out when those meetings are? So I, I think, again, start simply. Uh, most folks recognize there are board meetings, and sometimes there are special board meetings, and sometimes they go into executive session, which is not open to the public, and those are for specific reasons. But most board meetings are published. Uh, they have to due to Sunshine Law and, and public records law and also a state um, you know, uh, revised code. But then they also have a variety of, like we said earlier, they have a, a variety of other community meetings that go on. And again, it's dependent upon the community. It's dependent upon what's going on in the community. A lot of times they go to community events, like large events, festivals, uh, different things that are out in the community, seasonal things, uh, um, different activities and events that are important to the community. They'll be there. Um, markets, bazaars, uh craft shows, things like that. Uh, larger districts, they may not be because there's so many, they might just pick and choose. Then there's, again, uh, 
targeted ones where they have coffees or luncheons or uh, have co- you know come in to the district area as opposed to going out uh, where they invite and they have uh, designated times and they advertise that on social media, advertise that in listservs and robocalls and things like that. The other thing is most most parents and community members are most likely going to be engaging uh, board members and superintendents at the building level. So the superintendents and the board members will come and maybe it won't be all the board members and it may in bigger districts might just be an assistant superintendent, but they'll come to building level events and activities. So they'll come to athletics, they'll come to theater, music, they'll come to academic programming events, uh, larger things, elementary, middle school, high school. And that's part of their job. They're to be seen, heard, visible and engaging the public. So that's a little bit more informal. The final thing is getting on their website. Uh, if you um, if you join their social media, if you join uh, the super uh, the uh, district's websites or the administrators' uh, social media, if you are on the listserv where you get mass email mailings, you get on you know, the robocalls. You're also getting alerts on social media. You join certain. Uh, uh, platforms that are text platforms like Remind and some others. Um, uh, uh, I can't remember a couple of them, but you'll you'll get alerts to different things through those different platforms. Uh, they use that quite frequently now, and a lot of districts now are trying to uh, com- uh, to take all the different uh, communication that goes out from all the buildings, all the different departments, and put it into one platform. So parents and community members aren't getting inundated. It's being, it's being filtered. So that's a, that's a move that started about five years ago, probably it was ex, uh, extenuated um, uh, or it sped up because of COVID and you could just get overwhelmed with communication. So they've tried to um, streamline it. And, and that's helpful to parents, particularly if you have multiple children at multiple levels or your grandparent, you're just not tied in as much as you were when you were a parent. So it, it seems like meetings that parents are invited to or are welcome to attend that are just at the school level, I think mm-hmm. they probably are proactively sending out emails and communications to yes. say, hey, you know, this is a meeting that you can come to. So there probably aren't many meetings where parents have to proactively find out about them on their own if it's at the school level. But I think what you're saying is that there are other meetings that would affect your school that are at the district level, for example, where yes. you're talking about school board meetings and things like that. They're not necessarily pushing that information out to parents. Like that's the kind of information that you have to go out and be proactive about and find out when they're meeting. You are welcome to attend those meetings and you should attend those meetings, but it's not like at your local school where they're saying, Hey, there's a parents night where we're going to talk about this or that. You have to be a little more proactive to understand what's going on at the district level. And if you listen to this last episode, then you understand that that's a lot of what impacts the individual school level. It's not just about your school. It's about your district. It's about your state. And so is that, is that a fair summary of the difference there? and I would add a, a small caveat. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty much what I'm, I'm trying to say. I think superintendents, and again, it varies degree by the size of your school district, assistants, central office people, board of education, coordinator supervisors at the board office, they're anticipating you're getting most of your information at the building level or at the classroom level. So they're anticipating and they've organized their communications um their communication uh, delivery through that. So instead of being a top down, it's more of a bottom up. And then they they think of their communication as add-ons. Uh, and then the final thing is 
most communities, particularly small, but that even if you get larger, you kind of anticipate seeing some of the, uh, the, the political, uh, those that are influential, you know, particularly if it's in business, entrepreneurs, those types of people out and about in different community events. And so I think parents and community members expect board members and superintendents to be at some of these events, whether they're school related or not. And that's another informal opportunity to get to know people. That leads us really into your third point where you said sign up for every communication that you can. I I think most parents are probably already getting their basic school communications already, but what are some of the types of content that maybe you haven't talked about already or that you want to emphasize that parents don't necessarily immediately think of, but that they should be aware of? Where should they look for other types of communications? I know you've mentioned social media. What, What other types of communications regularly go out that maybe parents aren't even aware of? And maybe address that from the state level also. We've kind of been talking about the school and the the district, but you know, how do you how do you stay on top of what's going on at the state level, which impacts so much of what's mm-hmm. going on in every district in your state? Which again, if you haven't listened to the last ap- episode, you need to go back and hear that because that's where we talk about the importance of that. So, how do you keep up communication wise at those various levels? So, I, I think that the state there's there's probably in the totality of the volume of of both information and communication and. Um, opportunity. It's, it's less for the average citizen. But you, the first thing that I would do is I would go to uh, the State Board of Education or the Department of Education for the state, and they have pages on their site that are dedicated to parents. Okay. And so there they have, like we talked about it last time, FAQs, links, videos, uh, uh, tutorials, things like that. And you, you can imagine anything that's in rev- revised code that is um, governing public schools that has influence and statutory weight on the State Board of Education and the State Board, they're going to address that on these pages with parents. Because in general, while we're all busy and you know families have multiple children and they're working multiple jobs, there tends to be more involvement than there was in the past of people checking out these sites by just traffic. And they're kind of expecting to be able to find FAQs, tutorials, uh, links that deal with specific topics. And I'm also, I personally, as a parent and as a professional, would get multiple links as listservs in my email from uh, the Department of Education and the State Board. Um, and you can sign up for them. In fact, when you go on those sites, they'll have a little reminder, hey, you can do this. You know, they, they typically, just like an advertisement, try to get you to get engaged as a parent, community member, or person just perusing their site. So that's number one. Number two is you work towards the district. Uh, well, I'll, I'll back up one thing. There is a similar uh, opportunity. Uh, it's not it's not as frequently used by parents, but the education committees in the legislatures are extremely important and influential. Those are people that many of them are your state representatives and senators in your local area. Some of them are on those committees, and those have um, they have a lot of good information, not just for the insider professional, but for parents. You can watch videos. You can watch public. Um, uh, public um, um, involvement or public uh, testimony. You can watch uh, introduction of bills and things like that that are, that are very important for your particular state and that's going to impact your local district. So then where do you find that? That, that would, those would be on the uh, state legislature sites. And then within those sites uh, you could, you could drill down into particular committees 
and the education committees. Um, you could pull those up and they have all kind of different resources. Uh, they have minutes and agendas, archive video, public testimony, uh, the bills being introduced. And they also have the authors of the bills and you can do research on that if you choose to drill down that far. So that's something that I think people forget about. The education committees are very powerful in each state. Um, then working your way down to the superintendent's office or to the, uh, you know, the board of education. Um, so a couple of things that I think are really important are that the superintendents, one of their main job is to communicate with the community, with the public. And so we already talked about um, joining their social media, joining their uh, listservs. Uh, many times superintendents are doing videos weekly or a couple of times a month. Uh, besides the board meetings, besides they're doing informational updates. Uh, you can get uh, you can join those and get those automatically, or you can go to the websites for your particular school or the district and just click the link. Uh, sometimes that can get layered and it's hard to find, but sometimes not. I just prefer to go ahead and sign up for them, and they just come in my email or come in whatever social media I'm linking to as well, whatever platform I'm using. And then finally, I think as you drill down into the building, principals and classroom teachers and counselors. Within the building, there are web pages on within the district website. You have building um, web pages, and then you have that broken down by department, by counseling department, by classroom. And so you can go right into, and those are updated frequently either by administrative assistants, by the principal's administration or the department chairs themselves, the counseling, the head of the counseling department. But then as you go down further into the classroom, the classrooms have a variety of different uh, social media and uh, web-based uh, platforms. Like, for example, a lot of the schools I was a principal in, we were Google schools. So you had Google Classroom. You had Microsoft uh, schools where you had um, the opportunity for parents to have view-only access to a teacher's account. So they could go in and look at per class, per section where their student was in that class. You could look at their agendas, their resources, their assignments, uh, their uh, schedule for the week, what's to be turned in, what's, you know, what's going to be submitted, not submitted. So that's very helpful. And then you have other platforms that are like um, there for attendance and grades. Okay. And so you sign up for those and uh, you can link those if you have multiple children. And so you get alerts on attendance, you get alerts on academic notifications, you know, grades and something's not submitted or something is, or even on the positive end, things that, you know, you, you can sit, the settings are unlimited. So that's the layered approach that the, I guess the average person could take advantage of if you drill it right down into the classroom. And there, again, there's probably significantly more communication at the elementary levels on a weekly basis with digital newsletters, uh, updates from the teacher, um, and particularly self-contained classrooms as opposed to those that are not. And then as you move into middle school and high school, there's probably less and less frequency to that, but it's still there. I think there are a few things that I hope people pay attention to from what you just said in particular. Number one, you're, there are two kinds of communication that I think Andy's pointing out here. You have the push and you have the pull. And that yes. means that there is 
information that is tons of information that's available to you online that is not just going to be sent to you. <laughs> so right. yes, you want to make sure that you're signing up for the things. I'm sure most people listening have signed up for the attendance alerts and the grades and things like that. But that is that is just such a tiny portion of what's yes. uh, available to you, obviously, because that just tells you how well your kid is doing in the education that the, the government is providing. It doesn't tell you anything about the nature of that education, Correct. which is so much of what we're, we're talking about in these episodes. So so, you know, the, the state, uh, the state board of education is not just going to proactively send you information on everything that they're implementing. There might be some that they will send you if you sign up for an email list, if that's mm-hmm. something that they offer and you need to go and check that out. But they have provided tons and tons of information. If you Google it to go to their site to read through their web pages. So I guess why I'm saying this is that it's really important to understand that all the pertinent information that you should be understanding as a Christian parent is not going to be sent to you necessarily. You're going to have to do some research. And it starts by going to these sites. I love the tip about going to the state uh, legislature website and looking for the educational committee. I would never have thought about that. I'm going to do that for California when we get off because I'm really curious what's, you know, what's going on. I'm sure I'll find lots of gems that I'd be really pleased about. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's so much that's out there. And so as a starting point, if you want to know what's going on in your kid's education, listen to that first episode that we did and start at the state level and, and Google and find your state board of education. Look for the things that Andy's talking about here. Then come down to the district, look at their website, go through it every layer. Then look at your school's website all the way down to the teacher. Look at all of those layers, see where there's an, uh, an ability to sign up to get emails and make sure you sign up for everything. Uh, but it's also incumbent upon us as parents to go periodically, see what's being updated, see what's new, because not everything is an email subscription. So anyway, I just want to really encourage parents to see this as a push and pull process of communication. Well, on your fourth, your, your fourth tip there, you said take advantage of engagement opportunities. So what are some examples of that? And let's try to give some for for both the elementary and the upper grade levels. I know as a parent, it was really easy to volunteer when my kids were young in the classroom. I would go and do the little reading centers and, you know, help the kids count with marbles and stuff. But now that my kids are in high school, there's very little of that. (laughs) You can volunteer to serve Thanksgiving dinner at the school's Thanksgiving, but that's about it. So give us some examples of how parents can engage in ways specifically that will allow them to see what's being taught, what's going on in the classroom content wise. Okay. So, well, let's, let's start with maybe the things that aren't directly related to content, but they get you in the building, they get you meeting people and get you observing the professional culture, the classroom culture, kids interacting and that type of thing. I think um, one thing at the, at the elementary level that is um, been around for a long time is PTAs and PTOs. The, the thing that you have to be aware of is they're very different. They sound the same as an acronym, but they're different. PTA is a national and state organization that is a nonprofit, but it's well-funded. And uh, I'll just say it this way. They tend to lean left ideologically, um, you know, culturally and a lot of the cultural issues uh, and also the issues and priorities uh, that we have concerns as, as Christians and as more conservative, orthodox, uh, or traditional parents. Uh, the PTA, uh, I would do my research. If your particular elementary um, is has a organization, a PTA organization, that means that they have, uh, they have there's there's going to be monies that are collected at the local level that are given to the state and to the national level. So it's a tiered organization. PTOs are generally local. 
Uh, they stay local. They're locally designed. They're locally mission focused, and they're uh, they have a similar structure. But the funding and the de- the decision on the activities, the issues, the concerns, the interaction with teachers and staff, um, and the priorities are designed and prioritized by local people, community members, parents, that type of thing. So that's just a caveat there. Um, the other thing at the elementary level, many of you know, if you're elementary parents listening, whether it's a private school or a public school, there's a lot of opportunities, whether it be in the classroom, a tutor, a mentor, a recess aid, a library aid, um, a crosswalk, all the, all the about all those things that many of us either have done ourselves, know about, or maybe as grandparents, we're reengaging in our grand, our grandkids schools. So those, you know, fundraisers. Uh, different parties, festivals, bazaars, uh, service projects, that type of thing. Um, There are a lot of volunteering opportunities. I find that in those opportunities, those are the best where people aren't uh, have their guard up and they're, they're being themselves. You get to know people on a personal level. Now, many of the teachers may live in your community or just outside of your community. So get to know them, engage them. You have a lot of informal conversations about the classroom, about the instruction that's going on, about the standards. You can, as you're doing a project, as you're doing uh, a service-oriented activity, if you're doing a club, if you're doing something that's getting ready for a um, uh, some type of musical or things like that at the elementary level, uh, you can have a lot of conversations with a lot of parents and a lot of staff members that are off the record, but they tell you a ton about what's going on at the school. The other thing is uh, talking with secretaries, talking with nurses, talking with counselors, talking with custodians, talking with food service. You being in the school as a volunteer or as a tutor, as a mentor, as a as a volunteer for different activities, you're going to interact with them because you're setting up, tearing down, you're organizing space, uh, you're using space, and a lot of times they're there. So you get to know a little bit about the professional environment, the goings and comings and goings of people, and you get, uh, it's not gossip, it just, you get a feel for what the professional and educational environment is like. And then finally, uh, just remember that um, there are a couple of different opportunities where you can do this, that you can glean educational, academic, content-based information from that's, again, more informal. You, you've, got, you've got the building level uh, opportunities, which are what we just talked about. But then in the classrooms, individual classrooms, at the elementary level and even upper middle school, you have a lot of different um, engagements where there'll be, you know, muffins with moms, you know, coffee with dads, those types of things. Take advantage of those, you know, grandparents day, all of that. Anytime you're in the building and you're engaging with the staff does two things. Number one, you're always taking in data, always taking in information and observing. And number two, it gets you interacting with teachers when it's not adversarial and negative. And so you're building a rapport so that when you may have that issue and concern about content and academics, then you already have an established relationship, and that's a more palatable, more effective conversation. Yeah, that's I can the see, elementary level. 
I, I could see from a uh, from a teacher's perspective why that it, you know if you always think people are coming to you with problems and it starts to feel like you're you are the adversary, right? <laughs> so that's that that makes it a, a lot more palatable. And so at, at the middle school and high school level, basically mm-hmm. take advantage of of what you can when those opportunities arise and don't see them as youth, useless because you're still getting to know them and you're still building that relationship. So. Well, and I would say the the biggest opportunities at large high schools, small high schools, medium sized high schools, uh, you're going to have opportunities to to volunteer for student clubs and groups, music, athletics, booster clubs. Um, You're going to have opportunities to assist staff uh, and support staff at at different events, activities, and projects. You get an opportunity, particularly, um, you know, PTA and PTO generally land at at the elementary level and maybe the upper middle school level. But there, there is some versions of the PTA, PTO at the high school, but it's not near as a, uh, uh, prevalent uh, across the nation. But you do have booster groups for just about everything. You have student clubs and each district has their own culture of student clubs. And they have, you know, you, a lot of times these student clubs you have to have a staff member, and then they encourage a parent, a community member to come alongside and work with them with all these different clubs. And it's not just the big ones. It's not just like music, theater, athletics, those type of things. It's all the different student clubs, and there's a variety of them. And they've really proliferated over the last you know, 10, 15 years that I've been involved in education. And post-COVID, people are itching to get back together and do things together. And I would end with this. Um, there's also opportunities to volunteer with foundation. Uh, foundations are very popular in districts and they're becoming more popular to raise monies that are non-salary based or non-benefits based for staff, but they do a lot of ancillary work with helping support programming, educational um, activities and opportunities and scholarshiping. So those are some high school level. And again, you can add to it chaperoning, uh, supervising in athletics and, and the music theater. And then the last thing would be uh, attending field trips or uh, different programs that are off campus where you can attend. All of it, you gathering data, you're engaging staff members, engaging students, engaging other parents, and you're getting a feel and a vibe for the professional educational culture. Okay, so your fifth point is sort of related to this. You say parents and guardians should scrutinize, join, and or support community parent advocacy groups. So what what do you have in mind by that? You just gave us an example of the, you know, the internal, like the PTAs and PTOs of the world. But what other kind of advocacy groups are there and how do you find out about them in your own area? Well, just like we've been talking about, there's local, there's going to be state level, and there's going to be national. So let, let's reverse. Let's start at the local level. Um, there's both informal and formal advocacy groups. Since COVID and since there's been a lot of um, angst over uh, a lot of initiatives and non-core programming, um, SEL curricula, or even in the core when you're dealing with um, some of the concerns with curriculum and standards that are pushing ideologies, uh, there have been informal groups. When I say informal, it could be on social media platforms. It could be folks that just meet informally that have concerns that are like-minded, or they could be more organized and recognized by the school. So they come in all different forms at the local level. Some of them, um, they show up at board meetings. They give themselves names. They're not nonprofits. They're not, uh, you know, 501 three Cs. They're not, they're not, um, 
specifically formal, formally organized, but they do have titles and they do start to, particularly in smaller districts, they will have definite uh, um, uh, influence on what the board, the superintendent or building administration. As you move towards the state, um, a lot of these advocacy groups um, will, and you see, you've seen a proliferation of a lot of conservative Christian advocacy groups. Um, and in my state in particular, they've all been um, kind of centered on a lot of the issues that we've talked about, DEI and DI, uh, social emotional learning, content standards and indoctrination of things that are more liberal ideology. So a lot of these groups are nonprofits. They're, they have federal ID numbers and they have funding and they're well-resourced. And they also have lobbying groups within the legislatures, some of the larger ones in varied states. And then at the national level, some of the state level um, advocacy groups, and again, you'd have to Google those by state, or again, there's Christian, there's conservative, there's others on all the entire spectrum. But then if you go to the national, there um, those are, again, they're wide ranging. Uh, some of them are regional in the national scope. Some of them are completely national. And some of them are tied to legal organizations like ADF. Uh, others are tied uh, to academic uh, integrity. Some are tied to uh, religious uh, groups, and, and they're a wing of a larger religious organization. Uh, and then others are politically organized, like they come from think tanks or foundations. So I think you can you can find it at the local, the state, and the national level if just a little bit of looking. So I've come across some of these groups before, just accidentally not looking for them. And I thought, oh man, these are, this is great. Like I want to find more groups like this, but I've, there's not a central repository as far as I know, where you just go and, you know, look up advocacygroups.com. And so you're (laughs) listing all kinds of great things. I'm sure people are listening going, well, yeah, I want to know what those are because that would actually be a huge, uh, like a, a hugely important source of information that you can sign up for emails and get on those distribution lists to kind of like, they're the ones, mm-hmm. they're kind of like the clearinghouse, right? Like if you can find yes. a good advocacy group that aligns with your views, that aligns with your, your Christian worldview and that is working to change things in the school, they're going to be a really good clearinghouse so that you don't necessarily have to go and stretch yourself so thinly across everything, trying to figure it all out. They could potentially be the ones who are sending out the information because a lot of them are going to have newsletters and things like that. So you can sign up for them and that's going to be a hugely important resource. But Andy, what do you Google? What I mean, what is it that you're putting in to your browser to find these? Because some of them, uh, you know, let's be honest, search engine optimization makes it that it's harder to find right. a lot of organizations today because of the algorithms. Um, right. it, it's just not always easy to find. So what do you suggest for parents who want to find some of these groups and and subscribe to them, find them on social media, that kind of thing? Like what, what are some specific search terms that you think would be helpful for people to know? Well, and I want to, I want to, um, advise people. So as we divide some of these groups, you have um, conservative, traditional Christian groups that have, that's their, their core uh, and, and, and their particular mission and vision. You have political conservative groups, which may not have any ties to, to Christianity, Orthodox traditional Christianity. And then you have others that, like I said, are tied to legal groups, tied to political groups and lobbying groups that are tied to just general parent advocacy groups could be a myriad of topics. So let me, um, where I would start is I would, uh, obviously my theology directs my 
politics and then my professional behaviors and and uh, my thoughts and values as they're exercised in those areas. So a, a great place to start um, is um, Gateways is one. And, and, and we and I sent you and you're, we're going to post a little bit later several of these different organizations. But one of them that I've really, really uh, gotten um uh, I guess I get hyped up about because they're producing very uh, significant content for both the Christian that's an educator in the public space, as well as the parent is gateways.org. And they do a wide variety of that. There's also uh, some other um, particular uh, uh, websites that, that uh, prepare the way is another one uh, that is a conservative Christian uh, website and organization that um, pushes out uh, conservative content towards students and parents. Um, and then uh, obviously um, the Rise Up Christian Educators is another website that is um, right there with uh, gateways or gogateways.org um, that produces a lot of content, a lot of, a lot of videos, a lot of tutorials, a lot of FAQs, a lot of um, resources to help with the things we've talked about, uh, content standards, uh, uh, more hidden and uh, Im- uh, implicit ideologies that are seeping into the core areas, um, and then a variety of other practical resources on, like we're talking about, how to ta- how to engage your superintendent, how to engage your board members, how to engage teachers in the classroom, how to talk about difficult issues or concerns in the classroom, uh, how to do records requests and things like that. So uh, some, those are just a couple. I know I sent you a few. You're going to review those and post those a little bit later. Um, and then uh, as, um, there's also one that's well known in the Christian circles, which is... Uh, um, ASCI, which is a large international uh, website and organization that does a variety of things for Christian educators and Christian schools. They do accreditation. They do resourcing, professional development, orientations. They provide resources for parents. They're aimed at Christian schools and educators, but they have a wide and vast array of resources for Christian parents. And it's even helpful for parents that are in uh, that have kids in public schools. So they're applicable. Some of those resources are applicable for those folks that are listening to this podcast. So that's all a lot of helpful links there. And, and like Andy was saying, we're working on putting together uh, sort of um, several resources. Uh, we didn't, we're not going to have it in time to post with this episode, but keep an eye on my website at natashacrane.com. You can subscribe, speaking of communication, subscribe to my blog there. And you'll, anytime there is a new update, uh, a blog post, uh, you will automatically get it via email. And we will be putting that together with all of those, those links. But there, I mean, suffice it to say that there's not a single thing that you can Google that is going to give you everyone's, you know, perfect advocacy group, but it is worth uh, playing around with some different search terms that you can look to and, and find locally. And um, and so, like I said, we will be sharing some specific links, but see what you can do to find information in your in your local area. Natasha, may I add one thing just there? I think coming out of this part of the discussion, I think we're recognizing there is more than we maybe expected to be out there both in the local district, the state, and the national level, whether you're trying to find stuff out from the State Board of Education, the Educational 
committee in the House of Representatives at the state level, your local board. There is so much because of digital technology and the ability to engage on social media and all the digital resources. There's going to be a point where you have to pick and choose and there and there's give and take. And you're going to have to, for yourself, make choices that are the most effective uh, most efficient with your time, the easier, they're user-friendly, and that pertain to your particular family, your students' needs, and your, your circumstances in your local district. And, and I had written that down as a note that I want to come back to when we finish the seven things that it's starting to sound like a full-time job that we're giving parents to, <laughs> to learn what's going on in their schools. Yes. And so if you're feeling that way, I, I see you, I hear you, and we're going to come back to that after we get through these seven points. But I want to hit the last couple of things and then get back to, you know, if you don't have 100% of your time to spend on this, like what's the, what's the key thing? I want to come back to that. But let, let's just finish off on Andy's couple of points here because I think these are really important to, to have in mind so that you do know what your options are to get the, all this information on what's going on in your in your system and in your kids' schools. So number six, Andy, you said when you do have questions, so let's say something specific comes up. We've kind of been talking about discovery mode, right? Like looking out at all the information that's there so that you can figure out what's going on. But if you do have some questions that arise and you're like, I need, I need to talk to somebody about this, you said inquire via informal means or formal means such as public record requests. So let's take informal first. Given all that we've talked about, I'm guessing it's really important before you shoot off an email that you know the right person that you're sending that email to. So um, talk to us a little bit about what you mean by informal means when you have questions. What's the right way to approach that? And we've talked about that some, but what would you just emphasize for for this purpose? Well, okay. So informal and formal means. Um, So remember, because these are public officials, so anytime you're sending an email, uh, you're sending a text, a direct message on their professional social media or their email account or any other platform, that's public record because of because it's publicly funded and also they're in they're working in a capacity working for the district, whether it's a an aide, a secretary, a counselor, a resource officer, a teacher, an administrator, a superintendent, uh, even a board member in that capacity. So really, every type of communication that's on any platform that is part of their job uh, and their responsibilities and their job description is public record and is actually formal. Now, the um, the effectiveness of whatever you're trying to, to communicate to them, you know, which platform you choose, which method you're choosing, what the issue or the concern or the topic is, uh, is it going to involve a second step, further communication, a follow-up, a phone call, an email, a Zoom, whatever? That's not going to necessarily determine formal or informal. That's just going to determine um, the um, the either intensity or the or the um, the difficulty of a particular issue or topic or the uh, the complexity of it. And so, so informally would be what we talked about earlier out of different community events, out of different things that particularly that are not organized by the school. So if a superintendent is out and about, if a board member, if an administrator, if a teacher, they're acting in their capacity, but they're at something not organized by the the school, that would be an informal communication. Okay. But anything else where they're acting in their capacity, it's a student or it's a school organized event or it's on school platforms 
or communication methods, that's formal. Okay. Just in general, just so we're, we're being specific about the terminology. Um, now, when you get into like public records requests and different things like that, uh, each state's a little different, but those, those particular rules and regulations, the sunshine laws and the open records laws, uh, that came from the Freedom of Information Act. So that's a federal regulation that governs states and revised code and also the policies within the, the state at the State Board of Education and then also filters down into local school districts. So each state can have variations of that based on the legislature and revised code, but there are some generalities. And so you can basically, because a school is publicly funded, request um, generally just about anything that is dealing with the functions, the capacities, and the tasks, and the scope of a school, and anybody that is doing work within that in an official capacity. Now, again, there's some caveats to that, but uh, I would say that the tip for that is on your state boards of education, the attorney general, sometimes the governor's office, and your own school district's websites, they're going to have FAQs and um, tutorials or step-by-step ways to submit that formally. And there are probably a lot of examples um, of when you might want to request something like that, but I want to give people at least an example. So, because if you've never heard of these, you know, these kinds of requests that that you're making, people are like, but what is that? Right. Uh, I know that in our local district, there was a mom who they were, they were talking about implementing at a local high school, a new ethics class. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it was, so they basically, and I don't know the specifics of the request, but they basically submitted a request for any email communication that was involved in the school in the development of this class. And again, I don't know how that gets specified in the actual request, but in getting in getting all of this, um, and I'm sorry, I misspoke, not ethics, an ethnic studies class, yes. ethnic studies. And so it, when they were going through and they were requesting all this information, they get all these emails back. It was it was hugely problematic. I mean, they, there was all kind from a Christian perspective, there was all kinds of talk about uh, critical race theory and how it would apply in the class and how the class was going to talk about white savior complex and all kinds of things that people were like, wait a second, this is really problematic. And so this led to all kinds of discussions in our district. So that would be an example. If you are, if you are not sure what's going on in this new ethnic studies class, and you are aware that there are probably going to be some issues with that from a Christian perspective in terms of all the things that are going on in our country right now, then you can request the information. You can request the actual emails that are used in the process of discussing the formation of this class. I don't know if you have another example you might throw out, but I just wanted yeah. to give people an example of when, you know, when would you use this? Well, let me, let me back up just a little bit and talk about formal and informal. So let me use the word informal just slightly different. So let's say you have a, a classroom concern with a teacher about something dealing with content, like you were talking about. Something could be core or non-core, standards-based, textbook, uh, a unit, a lesson, resources, wh- whichever it might be. The informal, in my mind, would be you reaching out to the teacher. And in the, in the modern age, most of the teachers' uh, content standards, their uh, pacing guides, uh, their resources, their schedule of assignments, the um, 
notes, uh, test quizzes, uh, they are posted. Remember I mentioned like a Google Classroom or uh, their particular web page, like teachers have web pages, whether it's through Google, Microsoft, or whatever. Most of that is posted there for easy access at the classroom level. And at the elementary level, it's no different. It's just, like I said, it's, it's more self-contained. You know, you have a, you know, 20, 25 kids. Instead of you, you as a high school t- or a middle school parent, you might have multiple teachers you would have to deal with as opposed to the elementary level. But most of those curricular standards-based, content-based resources and sources are posted. They're for public record. Not just at the state level or, you know, at, at the state department, but they're posted on your district, maybe in the curriculum department in larger districts. They have larger web, uh, web pages, but also at the local level, in, uh, I'm sorry, at the classroom level where the teacher is posting everything, very transparent. Most districts aren't generally hiding that from you, okay, in general. And so you can pull that, and there are links a lot of times on there. You can go and follow the links and look up what's being studied, what are the resources for a particular project, where are they pulling uh, some of their discussion topics from, right down to articles and abstracts, things like that. Okay, so then as you move up a little farther and you're dealing with maybe more complex, the, the board level and the superintendent level, they generally will give you things that are normal, um, high frequency requests by parents and community members. Many times they'll do it without you actually doing a formal uh, records request. Now, if you start wanting to request emails, you're starting to request communications, things like that. Then they'll start playing, you know, pretty tight by the rules that are the open records laws. But if you're just asking for um, not as in-depth personal, professional communications and interactions, they're probably going to hand some of that over because they've already done so to a lot for a lot of different community members. Now, when you get into actual communications over some of the more intense issues, then you're going to have to go through the more formal, uh, you know, uh, open records request um, process. And, it, and I would say about that, here's my advice to you. First of all, be succinct in your request figure out exactly who you need to talk to to make the request to, be specific about what you want and why you want it, and then be specific about uh, a deadline for that. Ask the district, what is the deadline? Because by states and by districts, some of those deadlines can vary. Now, they can't stretch it out for months. There are some rules and regs and policies for that. But let me give you an example of a couple of things. Like a like you could do a records request, uh, particularly in like a levy year. Maybe maybe there's groups that disagree with a levy or a particular bond issue or something. So you can request the district's budgets for a certain amount of years backwards, okay? You could request that. You could respect, request a superintendent's outgoing and incoming emails based on a certain topic or issue. Okay, be specific. You don't want to take all of the all of their emails. That would not be effective. Um Professional development. Remember, we talked about the issues with professional development from both inside the district, state level, and third parties like the ESCs. You can request all the materials surrounding professional developments, both online, in person, hard copy, digital. It's all public record. Okay. And then let me give you one more example uh, SEL curriculum, DEI trainings and curriculum, survey, like, like, 
uh, a lot of there was a lot of angst over Panorama uh, nationally as an organization that was doing survey and surveying data for SEL and other reasons. And then they were housing that data and people didn't know where they were housing their personal data of their students. Parents weren't told about it. It wasn't being housed locally. How was it being used? Who was disseminating it? And uh, who was looking at it? All of that can be can be uh, formally requested because it's done on district time with district resources, district devices, and for district purposes. So again, those are those tend to be the ones where you go the formal route that superintendents and boards and administrators recognize that those issues can get rather hairy when dealing with the public, dealing with communities, dealing with advocacy groups, because they recognize there's groups in the community that are more traditional, conservative, religious, that would not agree with some of the things that are traditional right now in the secular um, culture of education. Well, that was something that was uncovered in that whole process that I was describing about the ethnic studies class is that one of the the people who was involved in this communication over email actually said something like, well, we can't say anything uh, specifically about critical race theory because parents will get upset. And so <laughs> that's the kind of thing you would never know when you just look at the final syllabus for the class, right? That it's like, oh, well, this, right. this looks okay, maybe if you're if you're not a parent who's really engaged in these things. But if you actually saw the communication behind of what leads to it, you realize that they're pulling the wool over your eyes to to some degree. So generally to to do these records requests and to get to this level, I think that most parents would have to have a really significant concern about what something that's going on. But it's helpful to know that this is available to you. Not that everyone's going to go out and need to make records requests right now, but it's helpful to understand all this because if you do have an issue come up or you do have a feeling that there's something more going on behind the scenes, you have the right to request the records around all of these things. So Really helpful information. Andy, your seventh uh, tip and the final tip here is that you said get involved yourself in leadership. So give us just briefly some positions that parents can take on. Well, I, th- I think, okay, so let's start at the district level. At the district level, uh, getting on advisory committees is probably the easiest and most prevalent. So districts, and again, they vary from size of districts. And again, the professional culture of the district, the leadership from the superintendent to the board and what they've developed over time. But advisory committees for a variety of things, and those could be for levies, those could be for security and safety, those could be for handbooks, those could be for um, textbook adoption, those could be for update um, um, uh, five-year forecast financial committees, advisory from the communities, and and those also could be for strategic planning. Um, the other thing is you're starting to see districts circle back around to because they got such pushback on SEL and DEI or DNI is they started to, in, in, in a lot of those committees, they did have parents involved in those, but they went out and selected them. They handpicked them. And a lot of times third parties, university um, advocacy, or I'm sorry, thir- uh, university experts were coming in and leading these along with administration. It wasn't really open to volunteers, where a lot of these others are. Uh, those would be the easy ones, the more frequent ones, the ones that folks would be generally um, uh, familiar with. Now, at the, at the building level, um, principals have advisory groups as well. Um, not only does a principal have teacher advisory groups, um, 
and building problem solving committees and things like that. But they also have parent advisory groups. So do your different larger groups in your school, not just, not, not just boosters, but like you'll have an athletic council that, that uh, are parents and uh, coaches and the athletic department or the AD will uh, run that periodically. Usually it's biannually or annually. You'll do the same thing on the academic side at the building level. You'll do the same thing for safety. You'll do the same thing for um, handbook. That's a common one. Um, and uh, those are just extensions of the district level because the building will replicate that particularly the high schools. The high schools tend to be your flagships. So there tends to be more opportunities with that in the leadership realm. And then finally, I mentioned clubs at the high school and middle school level. I mentioned a lot of the larger groups, but at the elementary level, you they're always looking for you to take on leadership opportunities with these different groups. And, and again, you may have a particular uh, mission with a group or an activity or an event that isn't necessarily leadership looking at academics and content and standards. But again, I really advise this. Those are informal ways to, to develop relationships with the decision makers and influencers that are in and outside the building. Other community members, other parents, other leaders, board members, superintendents, uh, staff, support staff, that those opportunities are golden. So I will say this as a final uh, thing to, you know, to, to insert is that if you are a person that has been valuable, you've been consistent and you have um, um, you are dependable, you're likely going to be people that are either invited, selected or when they open it up. Uh, there is a selection process there because you might have too many people that, that uh, volunteer you've already kind of tilled the ground a little bit by doing these other things. And you've shown that you have a passion, concern and investment in your school or your district. They're likely to choose you for, as you move up the food chain, these other committees and these other opportunities, because you've already worked well informally with the school and with the district. Well, that was a really helpful, uh, I guess, one hour's worth of information on how parents can really just become more aware of everything that's going on, advocate for change when possible based on the information that they have. And like I said earlier, though, that can feel so overwhelming, I think, to parents. Uh, you know, some people listening are like, I've got, you know, a, a full-time job and my spouse has a full-time job. We we just can't, we don't have the time. We don't have the bandwidth. Maybe some people, frankly, are just like, I don't have the interest in getting that involved in all this. I mean, I'm concerned about my kids and I care about this stuff, but I'm not the person who's going to be sending out, you know, freedom of information requests. Um, so for those parents, Andy, if you just had one thing to suggest to them where you're like, well, it'd be great if you could do maybe more than that. But if you're going to do something to know what's going on with your kid's education, I know what my answer would be or my takeaway, I think, based on what you're saying, and I'll share that, but I want to hear your answer first. What would you say to parents? So... I think this is like, I know, Natasha, you started out your your previous two podcasts with principles, overarching principles. And I think um, I would start there, um, you know, with potential issues, concerns, problems, um, angst about uh, some uh, something that's happening in the classroom. Always start as close to the problem as you can. So if it's a classroom issue, if it's a 
subject matter, content issue, a standards issue, if it's a student-to-student issue, if it's a teacher-student personality issue, doesn't matter what it is. My advice, and right, you know, in 34 plus years, um, 15 as a teacher myself, 19 as a principal, the best situations that I that I saw as they got worked out were always handling things as close to the issue as possible uh, to the problem. Number two, because we live in a digital age and because we live in instantaneous communication, there has been lost a little bit this notion of person-to-person or personable communication and uh, professional, gracious, person-to-person communication. So deal with the problem or issue as close to the classroom as possible while you're doing research and you're looking into things and all that. But then if it's a comp, the more complex the issue, the less you do digitally as far as communication. That's just, I always told parents that as I mentored young teachers, administrators, the more complex the issue, the more potential for um, significant emotional um, issues, significant relational issues, significant differences of opinion, whether it be the content, the material, or the personalities. The more complex those are, the more you do in person or the more you do over the phone as opposed to digital communication. And I guess I'll, I'll tie that all together. Engaging an administrator or engaging a superintendent or engaging a department chair um, before you engage at the classroom level, what's going to happen behind the scenes is me, the administrator, or the person that's the department chair or uh, the person at the board office, they're going to circle back around and end up talking to the teacher. They're going to point the parent back to the teacher, maybe with some supportive people there, like a counselor or an assistant, assistant principal. And the higher grades that you go, the general professional approach is the older the student is, the more involved they are in the solution. Uh, in the process as they get older uh, for obvious reasons of maturity, young adulthood, and the real world. So that's just basic principled approach. Um, it, it seems simplistic, but I've seen it over and over. When those things are put into place, they tend to, they tend to create a process where people tend to get find the solutions that are effective. That, that's really helpful. And I hope that helps to focus uh, some parents who are feeling a, a little bit overwhelmed. And I, I think from, from my perspective, I would say that we're all busy as parents, um, but I hope that these episodes have helped you understand that this is a significant concern. This is how your kids are learning the truth about reality for 12 years. So while we're all busy, it's the same thing with when I talk about teaching your kids apologetics and about discipleship. Everyone is busy, but that doesn't excuse us from doing due diligence to make sure that we know what's going on. And so if you don't have the bandwidth to do absolutely everything, because no one does, and people have varied degrees of time for this, at least 
be tracking along with all the content that your kids are learning. Problems aren't going to necessarily uh, just bubble up from your kids because they don't have a complete review of the world yet. So they're not necessarily going to read through their literature unit and see the same issue that you might if you were to take the time with it. And so you can't expect that if there are going to be issues that arise that, you know, oh, the worldview being presented is something that conflicts with a biblical one. My kids are going to let me know about that or it's going to hit me over the head somehow. That's just not going to happen. And so if you're being proactive at a minimal level, I would suggest that you look at everything your kids are reading. So if it's, you know, if it's the biology textbook, well, make sure you understand what unit they're in. If they're talking about evolution, well, that's the time that you need to talk about, well, how does science and God relate to one another? That should trigger you in terms of your discipleship to say this is something that we need to understand. If it is something that you're reading in history and you're talking about the Roman Empire and the book is recounting, you know, how Christianity arose, I bet you it's going to be presented in a slightly funky way. And I've seen this in every textbook where they're trying to be objective, but it's not objective in the way that it's said. And these, these are just some obvious examples. If it's a literature uh, book, read along and see what it is. What are they presenting? What's in the story? Know what your kids are reading. This is true whether they're in kindergarten, they're in 12th grade. This is the number one thing that I think that parents need to do that I would never have recognized the need for even a few years ago. Mm -hmm. But that as my kids have gotten older, as I've heard stories from other parents, as I've been a homeschooler and I've seen the curricula that are out there, there, there's really, I'm just going to say there's no excuse. We're all busy, but there's no excuse for not knowing what your kids are learning. Because again, education, you mentioned the principles, Andy, that I, I talked about earlier. Education is the process of teaching your kids the truth about reality. And they're getting 12 years of it. Don't you want to know what they're being taught is true about the world? So that's my that's my little soapbox there. Um, so I, I said we're going to try to wrap this all into one episode. I know it's going to be a long episode because now we're going to hit the questions that people had for you. And just so the listeners know, I've asked Andy to be really brief on the answers to mm-hmm. these. Otherwise, we would never be able right. to get through as many as we're going to. And it, it kind of reminds me of, uh, for those of you who are familiar with Mike Winger, um, he has a, fa- a fabulous YouTube channel. He just released an 11-hour episode on women in ministry in First Timothy 2. I've been listening to it. And he kind of it's funny because he's repeated a couple of times, you know, this is really in the weeds and this is really deep. But for the people who need it, I want it to be there. And that's kind of how I feel about these episodes. We are in the weeds on public education, but there are parents who need this. And so if this is for you, then I, then I, I hope you will enjoy the weeds that we're getting into here. So let's just tackle these one at a time. We're, like I said, we're going to keep them brief so we can get through a lot of them, um, but hopefully this will be helpful. So in no particular order, these are just from people online on Facebook who sent these in for you. The first one says, my friends who have their children in public school, especially charter schools, all seem to think that their school is different. How many of them actually are? Well, okay. So quickly, charter schools are uh, nonprofit schools. They are technically under the umbrella of the public school system, but they uh, they are funded uh, by the state through state dollars. So instead of the money following a kid to the school district, it follows the kid. And so a lot of these charter schools are in areas that are low socioeconomically or minority districts, or there's some other criteria. Most of them are run by nonprofits or for for-profit organizations. The, the, the draw is they create environments that they, they, they sell or they promote is safer. They do education a little differently structurally. They hire differently. And um, 
a lot of times they're focused on a specific area of um, of education, like STEM. STEM is a one that people would recognize. You know, so uh, a lot of charter schools are, are are STEM schools. A lot of charter schools also can be schools that focus on maybe the arts. Uh, others other uh, focus on athletics, and then there are others that just organize their their day academically differently. They organize how they put put the classes together, how they roll out curricula, how they instruct, and then how they supplement. And so again, it's funded publicly by by student. The money follows the student. It's um, it's still considered a school. Uh, under the state, you know, each state, but organizations that are not connected with public education run them, either nonprofits, universities, uh, colleges, or for-profit companies. And they have varying degree of effectiveness. Some of the very best schools in the nation are charter schools. Some of the worst schools in the nation are charter schools. It comes down to management operations and the investment in the methodology that's being used in those schools, whether it's traditional or non-traditional. So just not to belabor the, the question, but just to go to the other part of it, you know, where she's just talking about her friends in public school all seem to think that their school is different. I think that the heart of her question on that part of it is just everyone seems to think, oh, well, we haven't had problems in our school. You know, right. it, it's like we were talking about in the first episode that if you're only looking to see, oh, well, you know, Mrs. Jones was such a nice teacher and and, mm-hmm. and Mr. Simpson, the principal, he's a Christian, he goes to our church. You know, if you're looking at those things, a lot of parents kind of think, oh, our school is different. So sure. I think that... I, I think what she's getting at here is like so many parents say, oh, our school is different. It's fine. We don't have any of those crazy things that you see on the news. So from that perspective, how many schools do you think are truly different and not being affected by as many of the concerns as maybe Christians have uh, in states like mine in California? I mean, we, we definitely have a lot of educational concerns, but maybe if you go to other states, I mean, are they really that different in different places? No, there's not one school that isn't impacted by these cultural concerns and issues. In other words, there's a 0%. It's 100 out of 100 schools that are impacted because all of them, whether they're a charter, a magnet, uh, alternative, unless you're doing homeschooling, okay, or you're doing a Christian private or parochial private, and those are being impacted as well. But if you're dealing in the public space, they're all impacted by these cultural issues, these initiatives, these programs. Like I said, we've talked about it. Critical race theory, DEI, SEL, you name it. There's the standards, have them embedded. The professional standards, which were evaluated on by teacher, by counselor, by administrator, they're embedded in those. And most of your monies that are tied to different grants that are tied to foundation monies, that are tied to third parties that come through the ESCs, they're engaging in using these, whether explicitly or implicitly. So it's 0% chance that your students, I hate to bring the news, or the teachers or schools are not being affected by these concerns that we're talking about. 
it's sort of like an iceberg, right? You know, if you're not really looking into all the things that we've been talking about, you see the tip and that's just, you know, the face of your teacher in the class, but there's a huge ideological iceberg (laughs) that is under that. And you have to get familiar with the iceberg to understand how that's going to affect your students' education over all that time. Uh, The second question is the current trend for Christians is pull your kid out of government schools at all costs. But some families still feel God has work for them in public education. How do you respond when Christians critique that decision as forcing the burden of being salt and light on their children? So I would challenge Christian to Christian that that principle or that thought that are our kids to be missionaries in a mission field? Is that biblical? Okay. Now we're all called to be salt and light. But in the school sphere, so you have uh, underdeveloped human beings from the standpoint of educationally, emotionally, relationally, physically, and they're in training. They're training to be adults and accountable. And that's accountable physically. That's accountable emotionally, relationally, professionally, and spiritually. So, you know, you've heard this analogy before. If you send your kids to, to Rome, they come back Romans. You've heard that used quite a bit. And I don't want to go that far, but what I do want to say is, is that truly biblical? Are we called as the providers, the caretakers, the mentors, um, the parents of our children to put them in environments where we know it's contrary to biblical truth, biblical principles and tenets? We know that that is uh, the indoctrination in a variety of different areas and levels and whether it's implicit or explicit is there. Is that prudent, wise, and is that what we're called to do? Adults going into the mission field, different. Calling, you know, obviously discipleship, being ambassadors. Children that are not fully mature in all those areas, is that biblical? I would I would push back on that as an apologist. I would push back that on as a parent and a grandparent, and I would push back that on as an educator. So it sounds like you are agreeing with, she's kind of asking for a response, but you're kind of agreeing with the critique that it is kind of forcing kids to be salt and light when they're, when they're not prepared for it. And so you're, you're kind of saying the same thing. And I I think just to, just to add to that, what I've told parents before is that I don't think, and there will always be exceptions and and circumstances. So I'm, I'm, I I hate to say, I don't think I could ever, but I'm going to say in the vast majority of cases, it's not a justification for sending kids to public school in the first place to say, well, we're going to be salt and light. We're going to do the missionary, you know, thing kind of in the terms that you're putting it. I don't see that really ever being a solid justification given all the concerns that we have been talking Mm -hmm. about and given the principle that education is teaching kids the truth about reality. And you can't do that unless it's from, you know, a, a broader Christian perspective. I don't think you can justify that. Now, there are lots of parents, however, who for many reasons don't have other choices. And, uh, you know, they can't do the homeschool thing. They can't do the private school thing. For whatever reason, their kids are going to be in public school. While they're there, absolutely be the salt and light that you can be given that you're already in that circumstance, but don't use that as your justification for putting your kids in that situation in the first place. So that that is kind of the distinction that I have been making. I would agree with that. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And and I and I think that the reason sometimes I don't want to put words in in the mouth of the person who commented with this, but I think that a lot of times when people do Christians do use that justification, they're thinking just of you know well 
you know, the challenge for my kids will be that they're with non-Christian peers or the challenge will be that, you know, they're going to hear some things in the sex ed class. They forget or they don't never knew about all the things that we're talking about, about a completely different type of education when you're talking about the literature that's read and the, and the way that science is presented and the nature of the history that's presented and all of the other classes that they're going to get. They're, they're forgetting about all of those things. And so it's really about what kind of education your kids are having. Your kids are going to be challenged by non-Christian peers at Christian schools and they're going to be challenged depending on, you know, what kind of co-op you're in or whatever you do in homeschool. They're going to be challenged everywhere. That's not the concern. The concern is the nature of the education. So it's not just can your kids be salt and light? It is what are they learning? What is the purpose of education? So it, it really comes back to that. The, the next question is, how do you suggest parents deal with actual violence their kids are encountering at school? And the person who was asking this said, it seems like not much can be done. Do you have any advice for parents on that? Well, of course, I would ask the question, uh, you know, what do you mean by violence? <laughs> you know, so there, there's 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 all different levels. So bullying, you know, bullying is the catch all word that's being used and bantered around in education spaces. And then you have to define that. So let's just unpack Start with students not being kind, not being gracious, treating others as they you know would not like to be treated. Okay, of course, schools have been dealing with that, whether it be private, public. You know, you have policies, you have codes of conduct that deal with those things. To be quite frank, those codes of conduct have gotten longer. <laughs> Imagine that with uh, human behavior, and and again, that's in my opinion a reflection of getting the description wrong and you get the prescription wrong as opposed to getting the description right and getting the prescription right. Um, so I think with violence, when you're, if, if we're talking about the same word and the same definition where a one person is attacking, accosting, assaulting, uh, whether it be our vernacular or legal vernacular, then schools have a legal, a statutory obligation as well as a policy obligation, as well as an ethical obligation to protect children, to protect students. And so there, if, if this parent experienced a situation where their student was physically attacked, assaulted, accosted, or there was bullying, there was posturing, there was uh, verbal attacking, things like that, then if the school is not dealing with that, the first thing you do is to look at what does the actual handbook say about that? It's pretty specific. Most handbooks are very similar. And they always say zero tolerance. A lot of handbooks will say zero tolerance. Now, that's nuanced to a certain level. But schools should not be, and you should as a parent, not be settling if there is physical altercations taking place, physical violence, physical harm, physical threats. You should absolutely not not get involved as a parent. Go in, find out what the problem is. Always deal with an administrator at that point. Anything dealing with that level of the code of conduct, an administrator has to be involved. I would also bring a counselor involved, an academic counselor that also is a support person. The older your child, the child should be more involved. And then finally, when you're dealing with policy, procedures, and handbook guidelines, they have to follow them. They have to follow. Them. Doesn't matter what group that person's from. Doesn't matter the background of that person. Doesn't matter the gender of that person. There has to be. And here's something that parents may not know. On lesser 
infractions of the handbook. There's a lot of times, and parents can ask for this, there's a cookie cutter of consequences for lower end um, attendance and discipline um, infractions. But on the top end, where you have in school, out of school, and uh, suspensions and expulsions, um, there may not be wording that's specific, but they do describe different aspects of physical assault, physical altercations, physical violence in detail. And that's tied to statute. And, uh, you know, and so there's not much wiggle room there for the administrator. Again, go in, find out what happened, get all the information. And then I forgot one piece, involve the resource officer. Because if it's an assault, if it's violence, there's a possibility that charges the school or the victim's parents can bring charges against the other student. Not that that's our end game. We want the behavior to stop and want the student not to do that. But always involve, if there's a physical violence, the resource officer for the school. This question comes from someone who is not in public school. It sounds like they're homeschooling, uh, but they're kind of wondering if they can continue to do it. So this is more of a question from your educational background. She Mm -hmm. says, do you genuinely believe parents without degrees in education can provide a quality education for their children that will help them accomplish what they want to do in life and what God may be calling them to do? And she says, I'm currently homeschooling my five-year-old, and sometimes I feel like I can't possibly be the best option with my lack of knowledge about teaching skills and tactics and methods. <laughs> I can I can identify with that feeling having homeschooled for, for three years. I, I know how she feels. You go into it wondering, am I, am I capable of doing this? So from your perspective, someone who has a lot of education in education, uh, what would you say to parents who maybe are saying, well, okay, I'm considering doing homeschool. Maybe I'm going to leave the public education system, but can I be a teacher? How can I do this effectively when teachers have so much more training? What would you say to parents who are thinking that? Well, again, we're talking to Christian parents, um, Christian grandparents and others. I mean, the Bible supports um, that we are to teach, instruct, guide, model. And I don't believe God in both the Old Testament and New Testament would give us those that special revelation if we could not accomplish it with the help of the Holy Spirit. So are there certain people, parents, uh, guardians, grandparents that are more adept? They have just a more, they have a more uh, inclination to be teachers, to be instructors, uh, to have a giftedness in that area. Of course there is, but to say that parents, grandparents, guardians do are can't do it. No way, because first of all, we're called to it. Second, we're not to sublet it out. Okay, it's our responsibility. And third, we cannot deny that God will provide if we're doing our part and and he's obviously going to do his part, that he will provide uh, supernatural ability to do that. He will provide people in our lives that will come and help us and model and, and role model and help us, that there'll be resources available and there are so many resources out there that we're going to provide some of them um, to help, whether it's formal homeschooling or parents that want to be more involved in their private school education or their public school education to supplement, to tutor their own children. There's so many resources out there. It does not take credentialing and degrees to do that effectively. That is my professional and personal opinion. 
That, that's wonderful to hear. I think I hope that that's an encouragement to the person who asked this and to other parents too. And I, I know just, you know, having gone through teaching homeschool for three years, there are certain things that by year three, I was like, yeah, I could have done that really differently and more effectively <laughs> in year one of homeschooling. So you learn along the way. There's no question that you're going to learn from doing, but that doesn't mean that that whole first year was just, you know, somehow a loss. We we got a lot done. And and if you're feeling really unequipped in particular subjects, you could, there are always local uh, classes. There are online opportunities where you can, you know, have your kids take that. So you're not alone. There are lots and lots of possibilities as your kids get older. So don't, don't despair of that. Uh, the next question is, how do you recommend parents address their concerns when the school is resisting listening? There has to be a more biblical way to speak up at board meetings, for example, without yelling and screaming, but still being taken seriously and not dismissed out of hand. So maybe Andy address this at two different levels. First, what do you do when your specific school's administrators aren't listening? And second, what do you do when the school board isn't listening? Well, okay. So um, many times, it, and again, I want, I want to start with we're Christians and we're, we're, we're mentoring, guiding, parenting our children. And when there's an issue in the classroom, an issue in the school, the, the first thing that I would do is while it isn't, these are emotional things. These are our kids. We get emotional. They get emotional. And, and again, it varies dependent upon their developmental level, their age. But whether the, the teacher or the staff member or the administrator is a Christian or not a Christian, go into it as if we're not adversaries, okay? That we're part of the solution. Like we have an obligation as Christians to treat others with graciousness I mean, obviously initially, okay? And so go in with a little bit of honey and not so much vinegar, okay? And go in and do fact-finding, do investigation. Um, and it doesn't matter if that's a classroom level, if that's a, a, a support level like a guidance counselor, if that's at the board level with a superintendent or the board itself. First, try to engage on a respectful, professional, personal level. Ask questions, inquire, get your resources, get your, get your information as tight and as factual as you can. When the information is coming from your student, I'm not saying students are not telling the truth, that they're not purposely trying to deceive, but again, they're, they're not fully developed. So they're get, you're getting part of the story. So get the information from the adult. Um, and the more complex it is, back to principles, the more you're doing it in person or over the phone and do a lot of listening, do a lot of listening. You know, you see that in apologetics. What does our friend Greg Kokel say? A lot of questions and a lot of listening. And Frank Turk does the same thing. Do a lot of listening, a lot of active listening. And then finally, make sure the teacher, the staff, the support, the staff member, the support staff member, the administrator, that they know that you're part of the solution with them. Okay, that we're going to work this out together. Now, we may disagree about certain things, but we're going to walk out of here. I'm going to respect what you have to say about it. And I need you to respect what I'm coming, you know, and like, for example, a common thing that you might do is that you might say to the teacher, I have some concerns or some questions. Can I ask you about a couple of things? You might go in with questions and and phrase it in non-threatening questions. Also acknowledge that the teacher is the authority in the classroom and say, listen, your class, my kid. Okay, so you are absolutely the authority here. I support that. 
but understand that I have a vested interest. Obviously, I'm responsible for my kid, so let's work together, or if that's with an administrator. And then finally, try to find common ground where you can find solutions. You're not always going to get win-win, but clearly administrators, teachers are absolutely willing to work with people that are not, you know, fire and brimstone coming in and their facts are wrong, information's not complete, one-sided. Now, at the end of the day, the issue might be the issue. And it might be a teacher problem. It might be a content problem, whatever. But the initial stepping into the problem, be gracious, be investigative, and be collaborative in solution sets. And, and I, it's not perfect. It's a principle. And when, those thi- when I see those things being worked out and I see a very mature, very measured parent, man, I absolutely believe we're going to find some solutions, uh, let alone a teacher that has the same qualities that is not overreacting or not getting defensive as well. Same thing, both ways. Those are great tips. And I, and I think, too, it depends what they mean by, you know, they're not being listened to, because in some cases it could mean that, you know, they're they're telling their teacher that they don't want their kids to be hearing something like critical race theory. And if the teacher's like, yeah, there's nothing I can do about it. Well, it may be the parent feels dismissed, but there's literally nothing the teacher can do about it because right. this just comes down from state standards. Right. So <laughs> if that's why that's they're getting helpful. dismissed, because it's something that can't be helped. Well, maybe the teacher could have communicated that a little bit better. But at the end of the day, if you're not being listen to. And by that, you mean changes aren't being made in the way that I want. It just might be that you don't have the power at that level to, or that person doesn't have the power at that level to make those changes, which goes back to understanding everything that you talked about in the last episode. Uh, Next question is, much of public education these days is focused on students regurgitating the woke narrative in their written assignments. How can Christian students respond with truth in their assignments without being graded down for not regurgitating the party line and without being called a racist or bigoted for giving their response through a biblical worldview? So um, we mentioned an organization, Gateways, and we mentioned ADF, and there's many other organizations, but they put out a lot of... um, resources for kids, for parents that are in public spaces, let alone other uh, educational areas, and teachers on what some of their rights are. Just remember a couple of things. Now, this is at a national level, which applies to state and local. Uh, Students have the right to express their their faith in classwork and homework. Schools, teachers, cannot restrict, if it's tied to the standards and it's tied to the assignment, a student can absolutely express their faith and, um, and their ideological thoughts on a, on a particular topic. You know, obviously it's going to be graded on rubrics and it's going to be graded based on the standards of the assignment and everything, but they can do that. Number two, students can pray and read the Bible in their classes. Okay. So, I mean, I know just giving you just some, you know, um, they cannot be graded down. They could not have, you know, points taken off. They could not have, um, they could not be, have uh, topics that they want to propose that are related to the content dismissed just because of religious um, disagreements by the teacher or by a particular department chair or whatever. You can, you can interject in literature and social studies health and, you know, health and science, um, if it pertains to the particular subject matter, you can 
engage and use uh, appropriate and relevant religious material if it's if supportive uh, material and whatever they're writing or producing, um, you know, and so, you know, a couple of other examples, you can wear religious clothing and jewelry. Um, you can, um, you can be excused for religious reasons from school and it's perfectly acceptable. And it's also, um, not considered an unexcused absence. You can uh, attend offsite religious, um, particular instruction, you can express your faith in conversations like group discussions, Socratic circles, uh, different, you know, uh, uh, teacher-student discussions, uh, whether it be small group, large group. You can do speeches, presentations, uh, graduation speeches, other events, at sporting events, at other things. You can express that if it's pertaining to the content, the situation, the circumstance, the event. And so I guess to bring this full circle is there is a lot of room to navigate in this sphere with expressing religious aspects of your faith walk. If it's tied to the content, the circumstance, the activity, and it's relevant, you have a lot of protection. A lot of parents and students just don't realize that. And for that matter, uh, Christian teachers in public um, schools don't realize that as well the amount of latitude they have. So maybe just to, to give an example, I'm, I'm just thinking of this off the top of my head, you know, somebody's given a, an essay assignment and they're supposed to write about, you know, why DEI is important. And mm-hmm. maybe as a Christian, you don't agree with how people mm-hmm. define DEI. I mean, that, why that's the case. If you, if you're a listener and you're like, why is that a problem? Okay. That's, this isn't the, <laughs> the this isn't the place to discuss that. But for those who would be concerned about that, if you had to write about that, one way to kind of get around that is by using language like proponents of modern DEI yes. say that, right? So then you're not taking on the view of saying DEI as currently defined is important because of blah, blah, blah. So you don't have to take on the viewpoint yourself to answer a lot of the essay questions that I know that kids are getting today. You can say proponents say that, or, yes. you know, so, you know, scholars in this area claim that. So there are ways that you can phrase that that aren't going along with your own view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so there, I think those are some helpful ways that people can do that. And I've seen some parents say that they've they've coached their kids on on doing that as well. Yes. Uh, somebody says, "What recourse does a Christian parent have when their child is placed in a class with an openly transgender or self-proclaimed social activist teacher?" Well, okay, so that's a difficult situation. So the teacher, we, we start from the standpoint is the t- what is the teacher's uh, by by law by policy and by job description, their job uh, is their job to promote their particular ideology, their sexual orientation, their thoughts and values and particulars about their, uh, their sexuality. No, it is not. Their job is to be a math teacher or their job is to be a science teacher or their job is to be an ELA teacher. So it's very important as parents become concerned about that, number one, is there, in, ask some questions. Are there incidents where the teacher is saying things that are off topic of the content or the units or the curriculum or the standards that are personal opinions that are not, that are not, um, that were not engaged by the kids. In other words, they weren't brought up 
they were they were they were brought um, just you know out of the thin air or off you know off of a off the side, and it had nothing to do with the main content, the main discussion, the main unit, the main assignments, and it's promoting that particular teacher's. Uh, particular ideology, their sexual orientation, and uh, their you know, their sexual preference, and then if they have things in their classroom that are politically oriented, like for example, rainbow flags and other organizations that are advocacy groups, in most schools there is there is restrictions to political speech uh, that are advocating political groups and um, fringe group you know fringe or those that when I say fringe, I mean those that are recognized, that have organizations, they're nonprofits, whatever, and those others that are not. Um, you can't display those things. So that would just be like being anybody else displaying, you know, I'm not talking about the American flag and I'm not talking about, you know, historical artifacts, but I'm talking openly political organizations that have any, that have a bent ideologically. The final thing I would say is tell your student as a Christian to be gracious to be kind, to be engaging, uh, to learn the content, to be uh, to be the best student they can, but to be on guard, okay? Because when those conversations and those topics come up and it deviates from what's supposed to be talked about in the classroom, me as an administrator, if I'm engaged by a parent with those concerns, I'm going to go in and have conversations with a teacher and ask questions like, is that part of the content? Was this part of the standards? Was this part of the lesson? What did you actually say? How did it come up? Okay, what are you displaying and why are you displaying it? And then I would point them back to policy, job description, you know, and then also professional standards. So I guess the answer is be cautious, be gracious, have conversations. And, and a lot of times your kids aren't necessarily going to report back what they're hearing because they may just not be talkative. And a lot of parents have kids that don't necessarily want to talk about things. And if your kids are young enough, they don't even see the issues if things come up. So this Correct. just goes back to making sure that you're engaged in the classroom, volunteering where you can get to know the teacher and, and try to get a, a better grip on what's actually happening in there. Um, to what degree, this is the next question from a listener, to what degree do you think critical race theory has seeped into our schools? So obviously this has been, uh, you know, a big, a big phrase in the last few years. It started to get onto a lot of parents' radars. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people claim, oh, it's really not that big of a deal. Critical race theory is not actually being taught anywhere. Do you see a class that's labeled critical race theory? I mean, you hear these kinds of things, mm -hmm. um, not to kind of lead you into the answer, but from, from your perspective, how much do you think it has seeped into schools? Not necessarily just the name, but the concepts, the ideology. It's, it's everywhere. I mean, I, I hate to say that it's, it's, it's in all the cores. It's in, uh, it's in all of the non-cores as well. And some level of um, insidiousness, insidiousness, I would, I, I'm using that word. Um, I mean, specifically um, remember when you start talking about critical race theory, um, by now the schools, and I've been a part of these trainings, and I've been a part of these um, in-services, we have been coached and we have been given in-servicing from the school perspective, which again is traditional secular, of what critical race theory or critical theory is and it is not. And most schools and most of the folks that are in the public school um, 
space, whether it's at the state level or at the local level or the university level, they are going to minimize the definition and the expansiveness of critical theory. They're going to minimize its impact. And they're going to say, we do not teach it. As you said, there are no overt concepts. But the problem is, is their definition and our definition is completely different. It's a postmodern, you know, we're, we're playing the postmodern dance here because schools are going to minimize, parents and concern groups are going to maximize. And so schools generally, they don't understand. This is my take from a lot of different in services and professional votes and professional articles. They're not understanding why more conservative religious groups take the position of the expansive nature of the definition. They're, they truly, ideologically, professionally, don't understand why we just don't see it as an academic, legal term and implications, uh, and that it's not uh, in schools, inundated in every area, insidiously. They're not tracking with us. So if you engage an administrator, a teacher, um, a staff member about it, a curriculum director, they're going to know and probably have been coached on how to respond to you, but they're not going to agree on the definition and the, um, the nature of it being inundated in all areas of the curriculum. Yeah, and there, this could be a whole other episode, really. Yes. I mean, there, there's so much to be said there, and some people might be listening who still aren't really clear on what it is. And a, again, this is not the the place to go off on that tangent. But for those who know about it and are concerned about it, I think that hearing you say that, yes, it is everywhere, and you've been in, in education for all of these years, I think that that's really important for, for people to hear. And if you're, if you're concerned about those issues or, and you want more examples of it, and I keep thinking of resources, and I'm trying to resist throwing them out because I know we're going to have a document, but I'm just going to throw a couple out on that specifically. Um, Christopher Rufo is one of the foremost advocates for getting critical race theory out of the educational, um, any kind of educational institution, including college level, public colleges. And so if you look him up, he has, uh, he has a newsletter, a blog where you can, um, you can read a lot of great content that he does. And he shines a lot of light on these kinds of um, issues in schools. Also uh, something called that I subscribe to, and I subscribe to very few things on email because I don't like clutter, uh, but the Daily Signal from the Heritage Foundation, fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Like it's the one thing that I would say if you really want to be up to speed on a lot of these kinds of issues that are going on, it's not even a, uh, it's not a Christian publication. It's just looking at the kinds of impact that these policies are having uh, in schools and not just schools and, and other issues. But the Can I signal, say just one thing, Natasha? Yeah. And we said this the last episode. Let's take the best scenario. Christian teachers in the public schools, many of them, and I dare say most of them, remember we talked about haven't put all the pieces together in this era. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are, are they're trained. They are uh, getting professionally developed. They're getting advanced degrees and things like that. And they're, they're duped in seeing the whole picture and the implications of critical theory and some of the other things that are connected with it. They can't, they actually don't even recognize it in their, in their standards and the revision of the standards that come down every so many years. They don't recognize it in the resources they recommend for projects and assignments. And they don't, they're not perceptive from a macro level of 
that there are other folks out there, particularly Christians, particularly if they're a Christian, that have a different view on it, like that, that have a little bit more informed and they're looking at it a different perspective. And um, it's the most baffling thing to me as an educator, both working with Christians and non-Christians. The non-Christian, I expect not to see it and not to agree. But the Christian, it's pro- like I said, it's been the most frustrating. They just are duped in many ways because you're in the echo chamber of how you were trained, how your how your professional development is organized traditionally, and then how you do business as usual each day. And you just are missing it. Many of them are missing, not all, but many of them are missing it. Yeah, that's, I feel like so many things are here that we could say, let's do a whole episode on that. And that, that's true with Christians in general. So that it's just kind of an extension. I think Christian educators are part of the the larger uh, Christian mm-hmm. body. And many Christians are still kind of blind to what's going on with critical theory and how it infuses all of our ideas about social justice activism and what's going mm-hmm. on out there. If you're a Christian educator and you're thinking, well, how do I not be duped? A great resource that is very in-depth. It, it's, it's kind of supposed to be lay-level, but it's still quite academic, is the new book called Critical Dilemma by Neil Shinvey and Pat Sawyer. Um, We'll have a link to that also, but that will give you the full lay of the land on what it is. Um, Next question. Someone wants to know, are Christian teachers able to somehow avoid government standards without penalty? For instance, refusing to address certain sex ed topics, not using preferred pronouns, and not affirming gender fluidity. Well, I, uh, that is a mixed bag uh, of, I guess, that's kind of directing my answer. Okay, so let's, let's go back to something I mentioned. So critical theory, um, queer theory, transgenderism, um, social justice, DEI, and they're seeping into everything. Okay, the bad news is, the worst news is, it's not just seeping into the curricula, the curricula and the standards and the revision of the standards every so many years, but it's seeping into professional standards that you're evaluated on. So I was evaluated on, and every state has a different system of evaluation for their, the state directs the evaluation of its teachers, not the national level. It's the state. Okay. And, th- and that's imparted through policy and uh, through the State Department of Education, then executed at the local board, you know, the local uh, school district level. Well, you're seeing more and more of those professional standards that are inundated with these topics that are that are um, that are part of what you're evaluated on on the rubric of your evaluation. Okay, that's administrators, that's teachers, that's support staff, and it, and I mentioned this the last time, but very briefly counselors. We're talking academic counselors. They are getting hammered with a lot of this indoctrination on their professional standards and practices, particularly from SEL, social emotional learning, which is a part of this overarching indoctrination. And and every state's a little different. I, I can speak to Ohio. You've looked into California and there's others, but it absolutely impacts how teachers are looking at their job performance. Because you, at some point as a Christian teacher, and let's say you're not duped, and I've had those conversations with young teachers, which I mentioned last time, you're going to either compromise or stand firm and push back and risk some type of you know uh, negative result 
whether it be in the evaluation, whether it be in placement where you get for the following year and who you're going to teach or what you're going to teach, your schedule, um, you know. And so is there the potential where it gets to a point where the compromise is too great? For some teachers, it's already there. For me, I didn't retire early, but it definitely didn't help my my question or my decision to step out of public education. But for young teachers or people that are in the middle of their career, I do not see it getting better and being able to navigate that successfully without having to make some decisions. Like I said, that you're either going to end up compromising or you're going to standing firm. And those were some of my final, most significant mentoring conversations I had with teachers. And again, in a large district, a suburban a lot of teachers, a lot of young teachers, and we had a significant amount of Christian teachers that were struggling with it, faced with potential consequences of standing firm. Wow, there, that's a that's a lot to be concerned with. And you know, my my natural follow up question to that is sort of what it, uh, what would you say to maybe a college student right now who's majoring in education and is thinking about their their different opportunities? It sounds it sounds kind of grim, but I can also hear in the back of my head people listening to this thinking, yeah, but if all Christians get out of the educational system, right. then we're just letting it go completely and there's no one there to even possibly share about Jesus. So I, this wasn't on our planned list of questions, but where do you find kind of that balance? Would you counsel people who are in college right now and say, don't even go into the public education system? And do you think do you think there's a problem with eventually all the Christians leaving the public education system? I know that's a big question, but I'm just curious yeah. what you think. Um, actually, I've had those conversations with a lot of my friends that are strong, um, you know, uh, conservative Christians that aren't duped. They have eyes wide open. Uh, we've, you know, we've had many significant conversations about this and they're younger in their journey professionally. So they've got a lot of years ahead of them. Um, we've talked about that. Some are called to the mission of teaching and they have, they know they have impact on daily basis. And so I, I would start with, I'm never going to tell a, a fellow Christian that's in education or in some role in education, get out. That is not my job. That is God, the Holy Spirit and the personal relationship and their calling and their, and their professional, personal journey and what they're supposed to be doing for the kingdom. So, we are to seek wise counsel. And so my job and what I'm involved in is continuing to counsel educators on their rights, um, biblical perspectives and principles to be applied, worldview and essentials training, and then how to graciously and professionally push back. I mean, there's, there's pushback that is ungracious and unprofessional, and there's pushback and standing firm that is gracious, professional, and steadfast. And so how do you do that? As we've been talking about with how to handle administrators, board members, superintendents, as parents more effectively navigate that when they have those conversations and interactions, I think teachers, counselors, uh, even administrators, when they're getting evaluated with, with their the folks that are evaluating them higher up on the food chain, they have an obligation to be a Christ follower and to engage in gracious conversations. You can still be firm. You can still be steadfast and you can still be principled, but you don't have to be um, vitriol in doing that. I think a lot of these things, uh, it's resourcing, like we're, things we're going to provide the folks that are, that are in the audience. I think it's practice. 
you know, practicing it. And I also think courage comes in numbers. School districts are not prepared for large groups of Christians, particularly those that are tend to be Orthodox, traditional conservative, standing together and saying, you know what? We're not going to do this. We're not going to go to that professional development. We're not going to use pronouns. We're not going to, uh, uh, to teach this particular thing that is not a core, that's not tied to a standard. We're not going to do this. It's, it's, we're being principled about this. It violates our conscious and our religious beliefs. And you know what? I've seen it in my own school. 2025 teachers banded together on some professional development and it got stopped and rescinded. Hmm. So courage comes in numbers. The key is, is for teachers individually to know there are resources uh, out there that they can use that will help them on a daily basis. There are other, uh, there are groups that can do that. There is professional development in service. And then there's other people in their buildings in their districts and then outside their districts that are willing to band together in a network to help encourage, pray for, edify, and then uh, support when these things come up. Well, that kind of leads into this next question. What's an important way those of us who homeschool can and should be supporting our local public schools? I know we're getting toward the end of our time here, so I don't want to spend too much time on this one because I think that we've already talked a ton about that. Everything that we've been saying in these episodes, that is available to you whether you have a kid going to that school or not. Is is that correct? If you're a homeschooler, you're still paying taxes, so you still have every right to go to your public school and know what's going on, ask the questions, get to know the superintendents, get to know the the board members. Every single thing that we've talked about applies to you as a homeschooler. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. And there are a lot of programs. uh, If you you remember, I said there are by law, by federal law from a 1952 Supreme Court decision, and also in most states, there is law that says that students can engage in a certain amount of hours per week. It could be one, it could be two, whatever, that deal with religious instruction. And that's in multiple states, including Ohio. And there are organizations um, that both meet before school and after school, like Fellowship of Christian Athletes, like, um, you know, uh, LifeWise Academy, like Good News Clubs. And those are just a few that where homeschoolers, uh, parents, grandparents, supporters could get involved in their local school, become a volunteer, become a teacher, could be a sport person, help fund it. And a lot of those huddles, those groups that meet before school, after school, and like LifeWise, they meet during school, um, you know, and so they would be absolutely welcomed and their kids can participate. And, and then there's some additional socialization, relationship building, and also it gets them involved when the staff members The administration see that the homeschool parents are engaged in their school. They're gracious. They're invested. They help fund things. They volunteer. I can't tell you uh, the goodwill that is exhibited as a Christ follower that you can do in those circumstances that if you stood on the sidelines, railed against the issues that we're talking about here, and then just did something else, you have this opportunity. Maybe that is the mission field for you as the adult. Maybe that's your calling. 
don't know, that's an easy way. And there are a lot of these groups that do be, that meet before, after school or during school. Yeah, that, that brings up a, a lot of interesting thoughts, I think, because homeschoolers tend to be very educated on education, yes. uh, somewhat out of necessity, because if you're going to be the educator, you have to start learning more about how education works and, and the systems. And a lot of times, a lot of thought has gone into the the process of homeschooling, the decision to homeschool. So educators, I, I mean, homeschoolers tend to know a lot about education. So maybe if that's you and you understand the issues that are going on in public schools, like you're saying, maybe more so than ever, this is your mission field. More so than ever, this is your opportunity to take what you know and help out in ways that the parents whose kids are in the schools don't see, the Christian parents even. And so it's it's th- this conversation and our last one has really encouraged me too. And I, I've not had my kids in public schools. They've either been homeschooled or in Christian private schools, but it really does motivate me to want to really dig in and understand what's going on in my own district, see how I can I can be helpful, how I can be aware of things, how I can advocate for change. And I hope that it will encourage other people to do and that. And if well. I could add, if I could tag onto that, most Public educators, administrators, support staff, and parents for that matter. And, and again, if it's Christian parents, they probably from church know homeschoolers, or maybe they've considered it. But the average person in public school doesn't know much about homeschooling. They, they yeah. hear stories, it, it, you know, the myths, uh, the things, the gossip, whatever. And, um, and, and usually it's negative. Think about that opportunity. If you start engaging in those different opportunities or you start volunteering, you start chaperoning, you, you know, because you're a, a community member, you start getting involved in these committees or a variety of other things that the, the change in attitude and perspective of the public school person towards a homeschool person and the homeschooling um, environments and opportunities would totally change because they just don't know. And what they don't know, they fill with information. They put information they think they know into that vacuum of, of lack of uh, information and knowledge. Well, this is a really good question to end on. I know we didn't get through all the questions that, that we were hoping to, but this last one, I think, captures the heart for a lot of parents who are probably listening to this. It says, what encouragement do you have for those parents whose kids will be staying in public schools for one reason or another, but wish they weren't? One parent, for example, wrote, Quote, I feel devastated about having no other option. And the pressure I get from homeschoolers is very difficult. Well, I want to start on the spiritual side. You're not alone. Um, we are Christians. We have a God that loves us and does not forsake us, that, that listens to our prayers. We have a Savior that intercesses for us and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he absolutely hears our cries, our angst our worries, our stresses, and he cares deeply. And so we start from a principled trust in this is true, okay? And we're not alone. We also are surrounded by other Christians that are that have students in the public sphere and getting connected networking with those folks is absolutely a must. Those could be formal advocacy groups or those could be informal, okay? The other thing I want to encourage is that more and more, there are a ton of opportunities in states, and it's growing exponentially um, based on how you can find ways to get into alternative educational environments. And, and, and many of those you know, are you know, the backpack bills, the tuition credits, the scholarship, the tax credits, the vouchers. They're expanding exponentially in each state. Get informed 
from the State Department of Education, some of the advocacy groups, as well as uh, a lot of your private schools are promoting these because it, it means increased enrollment. Okay, so there is an absolute explosion of additional ways to get your student into private school or an alternative setting that might be better than where you are, particularly in the extreme circumstances. And then I would say this finally. Remember, we as parents, as grandparents, as guardians and mentors, we are we have been charged by God to be the primary caretakers of our children while they're here. We have been given the tools through special revelation on how to apply that to teaching and guiding. There will be ups and downs. There will be challenges and trials. But 365 times it says in the Bible, do not fear. Okay. And so there are principles and guiding tenets and wisdom that can be glean from the scriptures that some things very specific and some things more uh, broad-based that we're to apply that aren't promises, but like we said, there are principles that we can apply in these circumstances with our kids in difficult circumstances in classrooms or in the hallways or in athletic fields or in locker rooms or just in general uh, a school system. And I would say to you that the spiritual side is first, The second side is in our job, we're to be resourced and trained to the best of our ability. We're to use the Bible as our primary source and then use other wise sources of like-minded people that are following a biblical worldview. Get networked informally and formally and do not fear and do not feel that you're alone. Because the enemy wants you to believe you're alone. There is no solution. It's going to work out horribly and terribly and that you have no power and you have no ability to guide your child's critical decisions on education. That is a lie. You have great power. You have great authority that's been given by God. And you have the ability, whether you have the giftedness initially or you have to work at it you know, a crazy amount, you have the ability, you are the most influential person, the most influential person in all areas of your child's life, including education. And if they see you investing in taking charge of the process, they will respond. It, again, it's not going to be perfect. There's going to be ups and downs. But your child will eternally be thankful that you made these critical choices at critical times and sacrificed your personal time and other interests to do some things you didn't think you were going to have to do, unfortunately. And you will benefit from it and your child will benefit from it. And it is eternal reward. Well, that's a great note to end on. Andy, thank you so much for the time. I mean, across these two episodes, you have spent an enormous amount of time with me. And uh, like I said earlier, when I was referencing Mike Winger, I know that this has been in the weeds for some people. Maybe they're not looking for this level of detail, but for the people who need it, this is this is what they needed. And so I'm so grateful for your time, all the effort that you've put into researching these uh, these questions, these answers, all that we've been going back and forth on. So thank you for your heart. Thank you for your wisdom and sharing it with us. Thank you. It's been an absolute uh, gracious, gracious and humbling experience. Thank you. 
Well, thanks everyone for listening. And if you know people who would find this uh, episode helpful, please do share it and take a moment to rate and review on your local podcast player. It helps more people find out about the show. Thank you so much for listening and we will talk with you soon.